And the question I want people to start asking is, well, how potent is it? How significant is that into our into our lives? And that's a much harder question to answer because it is so context-driven. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I recently came across Nate Standiforth's book, Here's Real Magic. In it, he shares his journey as a magician. And as I read the book, I was deeply struck by how his journey with magic and the questions and perspectives that he invites you to explore, it's a lot like my experience with engaging the path of medicine. It's a beautiful read, and I'd like to share just a portion with you as it bespeaks my experience with practicing medicine. Here's what Nate has to say. Life in the world is hard, for some more than others, but for all of us more than we'd like to admit. And we deploy different strategies to protect ourselves from this hardness. We make our world smaller so we can control it. We make our world simpler so we can understand it. And we reduce ourselves to this diminished scale so we don't accidentally stray outside this fictionalized world and see the danger, but also the majesty lurking just beyond the borders of our certainty. The result is a world and a life largely free from surprise and uncertainty, but also free from seeing things the way they really are. This, at least, is how it is for me. But the danger is that over time, we come to see this pale, anemic version of life as the real thing. We feel the weight of the world, but not the wonder. And in time, we resign ourselves to one and forget the other. Once in a while, we remember. Once in a while, something happens and we see the cracks in our convictions. And through them, a sliver of that larger, wider world outside the one that we have constructed. The vision we see there either assaults our senses of control and sovereignty and drives us cowering backward to the world of our making, or it exposes the world for the illusion it really is and invites us upward and onward toward the real thing. So if your goal is to bring wonder back into your ordinary daily life, start by recognizing that it's not ordinary if you don't want it to be, that it never has been ordinary, even if you do want it to be, and that the whole world waits for you to open your eyes and look around and really see it. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation about electromagnetic fields and man-made radiation. While this is not something that Chinese medicine has traditionally addressed, it is a part of our modern world. And we know that attentiveness to our environment is part of the practice of our medicine. This is an area that I basically know nothing about. And so it's always a pleasure to speak with someone who's taken a deep dive into something that helps us to better understand the world that we live in. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers 
our terrific sponsors, and for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. All right. If you don't know the difference between infrared and ultraviolet or high and low frequency radiation, then get ready for a conversation that will help you to understand not just the basics of this science, but more importantly, why it matters. Brian LaCreca, welcome to Geological. Good morning, Mr. Max. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Happy to have you here. So you have a background in Chinese medicine, and you also have a deep interest in... Um, electromagnetic radiation and frequencies and things of this nature. I know you've written a book about it, and I've written some articles about it. 
I'm curious to know what brought your attention to this new aspect of our physical environment. Sure. Well, several things. One of them is I've always been fascinated with Chinese medicine from the perspective of us being as electricians for the body. And I often <laughs> use that uh, use that metaphor with my patients and say that I'm turning switches on and off here or there to create changes elsewhere. And so knowing that, knowing that the originators of Chinese medicine were tapped into energetics, um, it made me wonder on some level uh, how we're interacting with our electromagnetic environment and the influences of that. And this got driven home um, very specifically in my case when I had received a cancer diagnosis in 2015. And so amidst that and all the research that I started to do in environmental medicine, one of the subjects that kept coming up uh, again and again as a potential source as a carcinogen was non-native electromagnetic fields. So when I started writing on my blog, started writing for the cancer community, I decided this was the first thing I was going to tackle just because it was the elephant in the room. There wasn't a whole lot of research out there and um, wanted to kind of compile it and put that um, together for the cancer community. It's so often the case, I think, for so many of us that get involved in this medicine that there's something that's happened to us or something that hasn't happened. There's just something in our life that hasn't worked well, or like in your case, uh, you know, a bad diagnosis. And it just makes you want to dig deeper into things. Yeah. For me, it came yeah. later in life. I mean, often we hear in our profession the story that someone had some kind of injury or disease and they were helped by Chinese medicine. Where you know, I was the, uh, the oddity that I actually never even received acupuncture before getting accepted to Chinese medicine school. So I just knew I wanted to do it from an early age. But now later in my career, you know, 10 years in is when I, I get this big wake up call and um, then have to rely on colleagues and other professionals to, to fill in the gaps for me. I mean, at some point, I want to circle back in our conversation to how this interfaces or connects with Chinese medicine, how we can use Chinese medicine to maybe you know, reduce the effects of all these things that are new in our environment. But before that, I would like to dig into some of the science and some of the basics of this. I know how to use a cell phone. Um, we have a microwave at our house, but we generally use it just for storing herbs. I don't think it's ever been turned on. It's, it's you know, it, it's above the stove. It's really handy. You just keep your spices in there. That's what we do as well. Yeah, we have bunches of spices in there. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know a lot about electromagnetic radiation. And you used a term, I think it's really interesting, non-native electromagnetic fields. Could you, let's start with like, what's the background that we've evolved in and what's the world look like these days? Give us a kind of electromagnetic 101 primer for those of us that know a little bit about chi, but maybe not so much about this other stuff. Sure. So if we go back to high school physics, uh, all radiation phenomena is categorized in what's known as the electromagnetic spectrum. And if you were to look dead center in the middle of that spectrum, what we have is visible light. On one side of visible light is infrared, on the other side is ultraviolet. Then as we go past ultraviolet, we get to what is called ionizing radiation. And these are things like X-rays and gamma rays. It's called ionizing because the strength of that 
frequency is sufficient to cause DNA damage, which is precisely why we have to limit our exposure to them and why, for instance, if we get an x-ray, we have to cover the greater part of ourselves that's not getting that x-ray to protect our bodies. Um, and then on the other side of the electromagnetic spectrum, just beyond infrared, is what's called non-ionizing. And these are things like microwaves and extremely low-frequency electromagnetic fields. Now, it's in this other section of the electromagnetic spectrum where we have the bulk of what's called non-native or human-made frequencies, electromagnetic frequencies. And these are things like microwave radiation. These are things like radar. For time immemorial, since we've been working with these technologies, they were termed non-ionizing because the assumption was they did not have sufficient strength to cause DNA damage. So that was the assumption moving forward. But historically, going back, in terms of the climate that we have evolved in as a species, which all nature has, has evolved in, we are in an electromagnetic environment. So it's I, I want to make this distinction because it's not as cut and dry as saying all electromagnetic frequencies are bad. It's That's a silly assertion. I mean... Of course, we wouldn't be able to see without electromagnetic frequencies. Exactly. Visible light, yeah. Visible light. Oddly enough, for our particular sensing apparatus, we're dead in the middle exactly. of the yeah. spectrum. Exactly. Yeah. And and furthermore, um, things like ultraviolet infrared are very handy things. I mean, uh, infrared saunas are uh, a terrific technology with which to, to apply. And the Earth itself has a DC magnetic field which shields us from the larger part of the, the solar radiation that otherwise would cause massive damage. So, you know, we're happy to be in an environment that has a DC magnetic field. We're happy to have visible light and all the things that come from that. So it's just these other electromagnetic frequencies on either side of this big spectrum that is called in the question. In terms of Chinese medicine, we've been talking about as I alluded to before, we've been talking about energy for millennia here. In the Western world, in terms of Western science, it really wasn't until 1936 when a researcher out of Yale named Harold Saxton Burr was really the first person to take a voltmeter and stick it to the human body and, and measure the, the voltage potential of the human body itself. And, and it was from that research that led to the larger field, which is bioelectronics. And that's the same field that gives us the pacemaker to this day. Fast forward a few decades, 1952 was when another researcher, Winifred Schumann, was the first to observe that the Earth itself has its own native frequency, which is called the Schumann resonance, which is about 7.8 hertz. So here we have from you know the classics of Chinese medicine now entering in the Western world where we're seeing, yes, the body itself has a native frequency. Now we realize the Earth itself has a native frequency. And we're swimming in not just these native frequencies that we have evolved in, but now these non-native frequencies that are added to this electromagnetic soup that we are all exposed. Right. It's not like radiation is a bad thing. Radiation actually helps protect us, is what I'm hearing from you, with the DC magnetic field of the Earth. Absolutely. Is this the Van Allen belt and all that kind of stuff? I don't know the Van Allen belt. No, I don't know that specifically by name. Um, well, I guess what the Schumann resonance and the um, harmonics of the Schumann resonance, it's theorized to be caused from lightning strikes between the ionosphere and the surface of the Earth. If you look at the surface of the Earth, it's like a battery where where we 
tend to occupy on the surface is very negatively charged. And then up in the ionosphere, it's positively charged. And the differential between those two is what causes lightning strikes. So that alone actually has caused some question about our interaction with so much electromagnetic fields, electronics in general, that produce a lot of positive ions. So those who are on that bandwagon, so to speak, are into earthing or grounding because they they feel the negative ions that we get from walking barefoot on the earth counterbalances the positive ions that we are excessively being exposed to. I've heard a bit about this, but I don't understand anything about it. Yeah. I mean, I've heard about this earthing and they like, they'll take like a mat and like plug it into a um a wall socket that's negatively grounded yeah i'm a little i'm a little unsure of it myself i have one particular research paper that i thought was compelling that i included in my book but i also am a little concerned about just plugging things into you know the average all the ground plug of an average wall outlet certainly walking barefoot on a beach everyone would probably report they feel better from that. I mean, certainly the sun, the water, the negative ions that you're breathing in, they're absorbing through your body. I think that's probably the way to do it. So we've got negative grounded earth, positive sort of up in the sky, all this all this lightning activity. This is all part of the um, natural background radiation. And now we're adding to it, it sounds like we're adding more infrared. Well, the larger, the larger thrust of technology that has has introduced these novel non-native frequencies are microwave and radar, and a lot of these are grouped together in what's called radio frequency radiation. That's the biggest term for that. Microwave is a more specific term, and then what's called uh, extremely low frequency electromagnetic fields, which is the fifty to sixty hertz fields that's powering basically, you know, your your home, your office. What's modern electrification is in this extremely low frequency range. Those are the two bigger camps. So this is the wires running in our house. Yes. So the wires in our and running our house are around 50 to 60 hertz, which is considered alternating current magnetic and electric. And then radio frequency waves or uh, synonymous with that are microwaves. It ranges anywhere from 300 megahertz to 300 gigahertz. Those frequencies are kind of a, a moving target, depending on if we're talking about third generation, fourth generation, or now 5G. Uh, in terms of the rollout of the telecommunications industry, they've kind of the frequency has gotten higher and higher with each successive rollout. Where does cell phone technology fall into this? Is this microwave? Uh, yeah, cell phone technology, smart meters, cell phone towers. And um, things like cordless phones or what are called decked phones. That started around 900 megahertz. They started working into the one to two gigahertz range. And now as we're entering into cell phone towers in the 5G network, we're looking at six gigahertz up to 90, in some cases even 100 or 200, 300 gigahertz. That's all within the microwave radiation field. So what does that mean to us? in terms of people who live in this environment and people that use this technology. I mean, we are at this point sort of symbiotically connected to these devices. So the main thesis of my book and the main thing that I wanted to bring forward to two communities, one, the cancer community, and then also practitioners like yourself and, and, and those who are a little more tapped into the environmental medicine sphere, that main thesis is that 
I think there is sufficient evidence that a lot of these non-native electromagnetic fields, and very specifically these radio frequency fields, are a potent human carcinogen. Now, just to say that as a blanket statement, we have to ask several related questions. What I hope to come out of people who read this book, who read this research, is to really ask a different question. If I, if I can make that statement and just say, yes, it's a human carcinogen, then the question I want people to start asking is, well, how potent is it? How significant is that into our, into our lives? And that's a much harder question to answer because it is so context-driven. You know, there are a lot of things that are carcinogens that we're exposed to. It's just a question for each individual with their constitution, as we know from Chinese medicine, what is the contribution of that carcinogen within this larger context of our health and wellness and things we're exposed to? Right, and some are more potent than others. Some are more disruptive than others. Sometimes a very tiny dose will cause a big problem. And other kinds of carcinogens, you can be exposed to it for a fairly long time before trouble occurs. But to have that conversation, we first need to start with the, with the observation that it is a carcinogen. Now, going back to at least 2011, the World Health Organization was willing to categorize microwave radiation as a group 2B carcinogen. Now, that puts it in the same camp as lead and DDT. And we have now, you know, almost a decade more research beyond that that even more strongly suggests that radiofrequency radiation in particular is a potent human carcinogen. So, again, it's about context, um, but then we have to at least acknowledge that that's a possibility and then then go further with the conversation and say, well, then how significant is that for a patient? Now, I will say then, personally, as a cancer patient who gets a stage four cancer diagnosis in his early 30s, you get a little bit paranoid about your exposure to carcinogens in general. So one thing I will say is that, you know, if you either have a cancer diagnosis or remission from cancer, you're going to be extremely cautious about your exposure to any number of carcinogens. And so one of the points I make quite emphatically is we need to apply the precautionary principle in terms of how we relate to technology. If we can at least have this this running assumption that it is a potent human carcinogen, well, you know, you want to be exposed to the least amount possible, especially if you already had a cancer diagnosis. So I think that level of caution is certainly warranted. I mean, I don't want people to be freaking out about every last little thing. I mean, that's not good for our health either. Um, but we have to have a common sense discussion about, you know, its contribution. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button 
or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, you know, I'm thinking of, I mean, things like lead, for example, right? I mean, we know that's a big problem, you know, even in pretty small amounts. And, and it has changed how we fuel our cars. It's changed how we paint our walls. It's taken a long time. Decades, in fact. And Decades. I, the main analogy I try to strike is between cigarette smoking and cell phone radiation. Because they really parallel each other in, in a really peculiar way. You know, cigarette smoking... We were smoking like chimneys for decades and decades before we really accumulated enough epidemiological research to say quite clearly that um, cigarette smoking is a very potent cause of lung cancer. Now, no one would would argue that that statement now. I mean, we we consider that self-evident, but that's only because we're on the other side of that research curve. You know, we have a mature consensus now based upon decades and decades of research and observation. You know, simply this person smokes and then all of a sudden, you know, within their later years, they have lung cancer. Now, interesting about that, all that time in between from when they started smoking to when they developed lung cancer, there might have been problems all along the way. They could have had a hacker's cough. They could have had pneumonia once a year. They could have had other lung issues that were hinting at the damage that was occurring until we get to a big major scary diagnosis. And I almost wonder if we are observing that now with electromagnetic fields. You know, Wi-Fi is a great example of this. We had some friends over from dinner the other night who moved to the area and they moved into an apartment. Their Wi-Fi router happened to be in their bedroom and their cat, who always historically would sleep at the foot of their bed, was not sleeping at the foot of their bed. They had read a little bit about electromagnetic fields, decided to shut off their Wi-Fi router at night. And from that time on, their cat has now slept at the foot of their bed. And they themselves claim that they sleep better. So, you know, humans, of course, are um, we have the, the placebo effect constantly in, in effect. But for the cat, I'm not so sure. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, I mean, he, we hear this with acupuncture as well. Is it placebo? Well, why does it work so well on horses? Yeah, exactly. And so I'm, I'm concerned about these other little effects that, that people report. I mean, I have patients that claim electromagnetic hypersensitivity, which means that they have symptoms that they feel are being attributed to being exposed to Wi-Fi, being exposed to cell phone radiation, cell phone towers, and so on. I have the same thing. Um, one patient in particular just has a terrible time with flying on airplanes where there's Wi-Fi. Very, very difficult for her. Is this true for everybody? I mean, some of us... We're a little bit uh, duller, so to say. We may not pick up on the sensitivities like other people do. I think your point is really well taken. I think about the frog that's being cooked alive, right? You throw a frog in hot water, the frog jumps out. You put a frog in, at least I've heard this is true, I've never tried. You put a frog in, in water and slowly raise the temperature, you can cook the frog. I think it's very difficult for us when we're in the midst of something to track it at the same time. You know, we're all kind of lab rats on this grand experiment. 
You know, it's one thing to say cigarette smoking and maybe you're exposed to secondhand smoke. But for the majority of us, unless you live, you know, kind of way out in the country like I do, you're going to be exposed to something. I mean, we've all been exposed to smaller amounts of microwave radiation for the last few decades, but now it's really ramped up. I mean, if you live in urban areas now with the 5G rollout, there are going to be smaller cell phone arrays kind of peppering, you know, blocks, neighborhood blocks all over the place. So it's going to be pretty hard to avoid. So... Yeah. So yes, we're all part of this grand experiment as of now. If you are on the sensitive end of the spectrum, or maybe just paying attention, what are some of the signs that you would notice besides, I mean, something super obvious like, oh, cat not sleeping on the bed, turn off Wi-Fi router, cat sleeps on the bed. That's a pretty significant thing in my mind. Yeah. So what I've observed in from talking with other colleagues on the top of the list would be uh, insomnia, tinnitus, and anxiety, and then headaches. I would say those are the top four that I see. Anxiety, maybe depression, but definitely more anxiety, um, headaches, seems to be a lot of neurological symptoms and symptoms that focus on the brain, central nervous system is where we see these effects. I mean, even within the cancer literature, obviously that's that's the the biggest effect we see as well, which is glioma uh, or ipsilateral glioma, one-sided brain cancer on the same side that someone's using, uh, a, using cell phone. a cell phone. You yeah. know, I, I remember I, I used to work in high tech back in the 90s. We were just starting to work remotely at that point, so we had cell phones, which was kind of a super cool thing back then. You know, one of the things that we talk about and kind of joke about is, oh, I wonder if I'm cooking my brain. And, you know, I mean, I mean, there was some talk about that kind of thing. When I think about my clinical practice, I don't think I'm seeing more people or hearing of more people that have brain cancer. And it just might be that these people are not coming in. Yeah, selection bias, right? It, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, obviously, I mean, the people that come into an acupuncture clinic are a very select part of the population. Is there research out there? Are people looking at this in terms of epidemiology? Are we seeing certain things that are on the rise that maybe weren't showing up 30, 50 years ago? Yeah. Okay. Well, in general, cancers are on the rise. And sadly, pediatric cancers are on the rise too. We're at a place now where it's one in three in the U.S. and their lifetime will have some kind of encounter with cancer. The biggest ones by a long shot are basal cell carcinoma lung, colon, prostate, breast cancer. Brain cancer is kind of creeping up there as well. But in terms of overall cancer rates in places like the UK, within the next 50 years, they're predicting it to be one in every two people. It's not getting better, unfortunately. And it's probably as a disease process, cancer is going to overtake heart disease in the next few decades is at least one of the, one of the trends that we're observing. Having said that, specific to your question, if we look at epidemiological research, we don't really see increases of cancer for sure within the first decade of use. And to be fair to the science in my book, I do uh, reference several articles that don't show any clear association between cell phone use and increases of things like brain cancer. However, when I did start finding research that was greater than 10 years is when you start seeing that trend increase a little bit. So I put them side by side. There's research 10 years of less epidemiological research, no increase of certain cancers, 
But then greater than 10 years is when you start to see an increase in three particular kind of cancers. Now, we're very specifically talking about um, cell phone use and cell phone radiation. And those three cancers are glioma, acoustic neuroma, and salivary gland tumors. So all on the same side of the head. Now, epidemiological research is not perfect. And one problem is that it's retrospective. We're looking back and trying to infer effect. I mean, a, a higher quality of research would be prospective in which you try to predict a reaction 20 years down the line. It's a little bit harder to do with something like cell phone use. But at face value, at least, when you get beyond 10 years is when we start seeing. Now, we don't have, for instance, 20, 30-year-long studies. We don't have, for instance, a lot of research now into these higher frequencies, you know, 4 into 5G. A lot of the research that I had to pull for this book was really on 3G into 4G technology. So, you know, we are exposing ourselves to these higher frequency fields that we don't have a whole lot of good research for, nor do we have very long-term studies looking at their effect on the body. It's It's all pretty brand new stuff. I mean, I think in, in many ways it parallels what we're seeing like with chemicals and pesticides and all kinds of, of, of chemical pollution that we have in our environment. It's in terms of human evolution, super recent. Yeah. And and this is one of the messages that, um, and, I, and I thank you for having me on your podcast, because this is one of the messages I want to get out to our profession I really think the future of medicine in general has to have a very strong emphasis on environmental medicine. And as as much as I love Chinese medicine and I'm enamored with it to this day, you know, we're talking about things that were not written about in the classics of Chinese medicine. So if you are going to be a true holistic practitioner, if you are going to, you know, leverage the the teaching of being holistic-minded in how you think, you have to incorporate these things into your awareness of what's going on with the patient. And yes, uh, electromagnetic field is one of them, but I mean, a good textbook example of that right now, which is really hot in the media, is uh, glyphosate or Roundup. You know, we were told for years and years and years, it's perfectly safe. I remember when my dad retired and wanted to start a garden, and he talked to one of the extension agents, and they said, it's perfectly safe, it breaks down in hours. And now we see this you know, at least the first lawsuit that has been uh, has successfully been won by someone who was exposed to glyphosate over over decades of his career, and in, in you know, in in, in his case, um, having a lymphoma diagnosis. So yeah, a lot of those things are called into question, and we we even know now the mechanism behind how glyphosate affects the human body. So it's just you know we have to get beyond the short sighted thinking and look a little bit more into how all of these newer things that we are being exposed to can be affecting us. I couldn't agree more that we need that longer term perspective. I think it's so difficult, especially in modern culture. You know, new things come out, we see some kind of benefit. And then, of course, there's all the economic forces behind it that want to sell it to us. There's, you know, incredible pressures that come that way. And, you know, often people that are at the forefront of looking at something and questioning it, it's like, oh, yeah, there you are with your tinfoil hat on, you know, thinking there's some weird stuff happening. Sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't. And like you say, it can take decades for these things to start to show up and for us to really start to understand the mechanisms and all of that. So let's just take it that these new electromagnetic frequencies could be a problem. 
I, I love technology myself, and I still tend to fall on the side of it's guilty until proven innocent, even though I use it on a regular basis and, sure. and, and grateful for I. the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So given that there are potential problems here, we're kind of awake to that. And as holistic practitioners, we know that what's in the environment, what we breathe, what we drink, what we eat, just the milieu that we're in, it has a big effect on our well-being. What are some ways that we can be protective of ourselves and be helpful to our patients as well? Well, let's start with the low-hanging fruit, which for a lot of people is, is Wi-Fi radiation. You know, you can't necessarily control a cell phone tower outside of your house, but you can control the cell phone towers inside your house. And so um, you mentioned not using your microwave much, you know, the microwave. Uh, no, it's super great for storing spices. <laughs> what? Really good. In the right location, right sure. by the stove. Yeah, yeah. perfect. So uh, this is not something we need to guess about. The, you can absolutely test all of these things. This is physics, right? So you can buy meters to, to look at these electromagnetic fields in your environment and see what you're being exposed to. Okay, so what kind, what kind of meters are these? What, uh, can I go like down to Lowe's and get one? Or what, I mean, what are we looking at? Not and generally, no. Um, you'd have to get them online. Um, I mean, Amazon even carries basic tri-field meters, but... In reference to extremely low frequency, the 50, 60 hertz AC magnetic electric fields from all electronic devices and appliances around us, you would need basically electrofield meter and a Gauss meter. Those two things are paired together in what's called a tri-field meter. And so you can buy a tri-field meter for 100 to $200. You can set it to either of those two settings, electric, magnetic, walk around your house and see how strong those fields are. Now, electric fields fall off the square of the distance so which means so exponentially so it means the further you get away from a wall outlet you're going to be exposed to far less and furthermore electric fields can be shielded if there is a piece of metal that's between you and that in that field it would block it entirely so for instance the wiring in your house which is normally plastic coated wiring the electric field still kind of bleeds off from that and if that same wiring was in metal conduit or if you got that old-fashioned bx metal wrapped wiring that would suppress the electric field completely having said that the magnetic field you can't block from with, with something like a, a metal clad or metal shielding and so magnetic fields can persist and magnetic fields tend to be a bit more harmful in terms of the research literature, in terms of cancer and a lot of other health issues. How's an electrical field different than a magnetic field? Okay, so they both are occurring at the same time, which is why they're called electromagnetic field. Whenever you have an electric field, it tends to, which is specifically an alternating electric field, it generates a magnetic field. So they go they go hand in hand. And in terms of how they're affecting the body, that's we can get into a little bit about the actual mechanisms and what we see. But before we do that, just to kind of kind of come back and, and just in terms of the meters and measuring for these things, the, the second meter I want to bring up is just a microwave or radio frequency meter. And that's the one that you can use to test for things like Wi-Fi in your house. So things like cordless phones, the the receiver at which that phone sits is a small little microwave, you know, antenna. Anywhere you have Wi-Fi, any place that that Wi-Fi is getting rebroadcasted, which in, in a sense is the device in front of you, the laptop, the cell phone, whatever, what have you, is then retransmitting. That's going to be a hot spot. And microwaves, I have never, I mean, I have seen brand new, beautiful microwaves. I have never 
tested a microwave oven that I could not detect a significant microwave field at least a dozen feet away from it. I mean, they are supposed to be 100% shielded, but then you can put a cup of water in there, close it, press start, and I can wake, walk away 15 feet even and, and still spike my meter. So I don't know what that's about, but microwave variation is pervasive in all of those devices and we can measure it. The last thing I'll bring up is, um, and something I talk about in the book, which is in between those two fields is a third field called voltage transients. It has a more common name, it's called dirty electricity. And these are little spikes of frequencies in the kilohertz range that occur within the wiring in, in, in our buildings. And that you would measure with what's called an EMI meter. You'd plug that into an outlet and it would tell you uh, numerically the these uh, voltage transients, these spikes that are occurring in clean energy. So those are the three meters that we recommend in the book that, again, you don't have to guess about these things. You can walk around, you can test them, you can see what you're being exposed to. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, I think the low-hanging fruit is, you know, your Wi-Fi is because that's one you have control over, and that's one that you can measure. And it's the one that's, in some ways, easiest to remediate. Uh, if you're not willing to live without your Wi-Fi router, in the very least, you can just put it on a timer and just turn it off before you go to bed every night. I mean, that's the easiest solution. And the most straightforward solution is just to do without it altogether and just run, you know, Ethernet cable throughout your house for all your devices. Old-fashioned Cat5 wire. Cat5, Cat6, now they even got Cat7. They got Cat7. <laughs> uh, it's been a while since I was running uh, cable like that. Yeah, and the connections tends to be much faster. It's very it's very secure, you know, and so that's one option. I mean, even like we have an Apple TV that we have to our plugged into our TV that has an Ethernet jack in the back. You can plug that in. So, you know, a lot of devices still have, and even something like a um, like a smartphone. A lot of them there's there's a way that you can plug that in uh, to an Ethernet uh, cable. So mm -hmm. it's possible. So. I want to hear a little bit more about Wi-Fi because it's so pervasive. We so rely on it. Everyone loves their Wi-Fi, right? Super convenient. What are some other ways of working around it? Well, if you choose to have Wi-Fi, I would say one thing you can always do is have that router be placed farthest away from occupied spaces. So you definitely don't want it in your bedroom. You know, you don't want it anywhere where you're going to be sitting around for any length of time. So that will at least hedge for one of the exposures, which is being right next to the source itself. The second problem, which is much harder to deal with, is what I just alluded to is, but that signal is then going to be retransmitted to any device that you're using. Right. And anywhere that you would want to get good Wi-Fi signal, you'd want good signal. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, it's like you're asking for it. Yeah, so I don't have any good answers for you other than, you know, a lot of people assume it's just the Wi-Fi router itself. Yeah, I mean, that's one distinct problem, but I think the greater problem, you know, I can I can have a Wi-Fi router plugged in and I can, again, walk maybe 15, 20 feet away from it and the signal drops off quite a bit. I mean, yeah, it's still impacting you, but I don't think it's as significant as the device that's in your hand because then I can bring my meter right to that and it spikes. So again, it's it's the device that you are using that is rebroadcasting that signal and in some ways maybe even amplifying it uh, that is the larger problem. And that's unavoidable. Unless you're going to choose to do a wired connection, you're always going to be exposed to that if you're using it. 
In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, and there's not just the Wi-Fi that's in our house. I mean, when I open up my Wi-Fi menu, there's like seven or eight signals, pretty good, you know, full bar signals in my neighborhood that I could pick up. Yeah. And, you know, there are ways, uh, you know, there's a lot of different um, strategies for blocking these microwave if if you wanted to, for instance, I mean, you could put silver fabric around your bed and create a Faraday cage. I mean, for, for my patients who claim electro hypersensitivity syndrome, these are the kinds of things they do, or they'll buy certain kinds of paint. It's called EMR paint, and they'll paint their walls and ground the walls itself and then paint over it, and that shields from microwave radiation. They can You can buy certain window treatments, film that you can put over your windows that has metal fiber in them that blocks it. Now, I've never done any of these things personally, and I couldn't recommend, you know, how, how this is all done. But I mean, these are these are solutions that are out there for people who claim to be really sensitive. I mean, short of moving out into the desert somewhere, right? It's something that, again, that we're all exposed to, uh, certainly in urban areas. Um, you know, you could be in an apartment complex, and there can be maybe six units, and there can be six smart meters, and you could be the unlucky person that has those six smart meters on your wall of your unit. I mean, that's just the strongest signals you can possibly get. Um, I'm not familiar with what a smart meter is. Okay, so old-fashioned analog meters, which you and I are old enough to remember, they had the little wheel spinning in there, and that's what was you know, basically measuring how much energy usage in kilowatt hours that particular residence was consuming. Since then, we've moved to digital meters. And digital meters have two kinds, two flavors. Uh, One of them are what are called drive-by meters, which are meters that do emit a pulse. And it's about every second or a couple seconds. And that pulse is basically only strong enough to be picked up by a car that's driving down the road. So that would be the electrical company driving by. They're waiting for the signal. They're registering it. They move on to the next residence. That's why it's called the drive-by meter. So your meter reader is not walking around writing down numbers anymore. But they're driving by your house and getting the signal. Okay. But that, needless to say, that pulse is happening every few seconds 
throughout, not when when it's requested, not when that person's driving by once a month or however often they come. The second flavor of, of digital meter is what's called a true smart meter. And these are stronger. They, they will then put out a signal that goes much further, either to a recording station or a base station, and or the meters themselves chain up, they link, and this, their information is then pushed further to uh, a reading station. That way, no one is walking by your house, and those signals, like a cell phone network, are piggybacking off each other to get that information back to the um, to the company. Mm-hmm. And so, your meter itself is part of that network. Correct. Yeah. And then, what's categorized as the Internet of Things is all these smart devices in our house, which then is trying to register energy usage and communicate that back to the energy company. Right. I I hear about things like, especially with G5 coming on, that so many things are going to be able to be automated, including your refrigerator saying, oh, uh, that milk in your refrigerator is a little bit old. You better go, you know, go buy some new milk right now. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. Because it's been monitoring how long it's been in there and it's been monitoring the temperature and, you know, all that good stuff. What kind of frequencies is this stuff using? So these and are all microwave frequencies. Again, these are all microwave yeah. frequencies. So so we're just back in that realm of microwave and we're not sure what it's doing to us. <laughs> well, we have some evidence for that. And if you want to dive a little bit more into that now, we certainly mm-hmm. can. Yeah, I'm curious about it. What I've identified is there are four corroborating lines of evidence. Now we've talked about one of those already, which is the epidemiological research. A second line of evidence is experimental, which is if we are observing this effect, let's say increase of cancer from exposure to microwave radiation, how exactly is that happening? Do we see that effect, for instance, in a test tube? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, Dr. George Carlo, who is hired by the Wireless Technology Research Project, which is a telecommunications industry funded project, he uh, hired doctors Tyson Hook to very specifically answer this question. And he had got an inkling that something like this was going on based upon earlier research in 1995 by Dr. Henry Lai, who was a researcher in the University of Washington, a uh, bioengineering researcher. And what Dr. Henry Lai was able to show with rat brain cells in a test tube that a 1.2 watt SAR rating, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but SAR is basically a, a measurement of, or called specific absorption rate of, the, of the, the, the potency of cell phones. And he was able to show with rat brain cells in a test tube that you would, he would measure DNA strand breaks around 1.2 watt SAR. Dr. Carlo found that to be interesting, but not compelling enough for several reasons. One is they were using rat brain cells, and he wanted to kind of refine that research. So when he was working with Dr. Tyson Hook, he used human blood cells, and they used a new test, which was new in 1998 at the time, which was the presence of myconuclei. In short, if you were to look at DNA and how it's tightly wound together in a double helix, all those nucleic acids are, are bound. They don't come out unless it's going to get, um, the DNA is going to get transcribed. And so the presence of micronuclei, these little fragments of DNA, would only be possible if that DNA strand broke by some abnormal means. And so a test had just been developed to, to measure micronuclei within a 
test tube experiment. And that was considered at the time the gold standard. If we can measure micronuclei, we know there's DNA damage, and then we can infer that there's mutagenesis as a possibility. So in 90, 1998, they did measure that as low as one watt per kilogram SAR, they could measure DNA strand breaks in human blood cells. So that's the experimental evidence that is saying, okay, what we're observing and epidemiologically is possible, at least in a test tube. Okay, two lines of evidence. Now we enter into the third. If that is true, if those DNA strand breaks are occurring, what is the mechanism behind that occurring? Well, here there's been several different theories that have, have been introduced. One of them is, and I think this is a very significant one, is that both low-frequency and high-frequency fields suppress melatonin in the body. We've known that for decades. There's excellent, clear research showing how exposure to electromagnetic field suppresses melatonin. A second one is we see a breakdown in the blood-brain barrier, damage to the blood-brain barrier, specifically with microwave radiation in and around the head. A third possible mechanism, which was introduced by Dr. Henry Lai, is what's called the Fenton reaction, which is an iron oxidation that gives rise to free radical damage. And then the fourth, which I think in some ways is the most compelling and has a string of research assigned to it, is the work of Dr. Martin Paul. And Dr. Paul is uh, one who discovered that through the action of what are called voltage-gated calcium channels, that electromagnetic fields can be measured to increase intracellular tissue calcium. And whenever you increase intracellular calcium, you do also have the potential for free radical damage. So whether it be from iron oxidation, suppression of melatonin, um, through increase of intracellular calcium, all these things seem to be pointing mechanistically to how these things are having effect. So those are the, the three lines of evidence. And then the fourth line of evidence that I discuss is basically animal studies. You know, again, if all these three things are true, do we really see this in a controlled experiment with with uh, in animal studies? And here, the National Toxicology Program, which from our own government's you know research, looked at this exact question. They looked at 1,900 megahertz and 900 megahertz fields. We're talking way back in 3G technology, and they were looking at two cohorts, mice and rats. Um, they did a shorter study with mice. From that, they, they saw basically equivocal evidence, which is their fancy way of saying there was a marginal increase in neoplasms with exposure to 1,900 megahertz fields. But the rat experiment, they ran for two years. And in rats exposed for two years, their earliest conclusion back in 2016 was that there was five cohorts that had equivocal evidence, two that showed some evidence, and one that showed no evidence. That research was reevaluated in 2018. And when that review, as in peer review, was, was established, they upgraded in all cases um, the evidence that they saw. So back in 2018 now, they upgraded five cohorts showing clear evidence of carcinogenesis, specifically glioma and adrenal and heart cancers. So now we're saying, okay, even within two years of rats being exposed to 3G technology, they were able to conclude under peer review that for sure we're seeing increases of these particular subtypes of cancer. So now we've got these four lines of evidence that we have to connect the dots. We have epidemiological evidence in humans, 
we have the research in terms of experimental research and test tubes, we have the mechanisms, and we have the animal studies that all seem to suggest the same thing. Which earlier you were referring to saying the better research is not retrospective, but it's predictive, looking yeah, it's into the future. Now, that won't happen. We won't have a prospective study in um, with cell phone radiation because that won't really that won't pass an institutional re review board. It's the same way you can't prospectively take two cohorts and assign one cigarette to smoke for 20 years and the other not. It's, it's unethical. So exactly. we have to read between the lines, basically. I can only give you the four lines of evidence that we just discussed and say, is that sufficient for you? you know, as a forward-thinking individual to to warrant caution, to apply the precautionary principle. Okay, yeah. The thing about the ethics and not being able to, you know, do research that, that would bring harm, I mean, of course, none of us would want to do that. And then it gets tricky because we do have to read through the lines. We do have to connect dots that you can't really do research on. And nobody would, I don't think anybody would want to do that research, not anyone with a heart at any rate. But this is where our profession can really shine, because what can we do? I mean, we can approach this from our own knowledge base. We can approach this from our own observations. I mean, just like a doctor from the 1960s, you know, if you were starting to see increases of lung issues in your patients who were smoking that didn't have lung cancer yet, you can start to read between the lines. I mean, you can start to form an opinion about that. And we don't want to be unscientific about that, but we can use the tools at our disposal. We can use tongue and pulse. We can use conversations with colleagues to try to figure out, I mean, what are we seeing? Is this a real thing? Can we predictably treat this? You know, and these are questions that I don't necessarily have answers to, but it's definitely something that we can start to have a conversation about, again, as a profession. Yes. Well, and I think they're helpful questions. You were talking about with Wi-Fi that you're probably going to see insomnia, tinnitus, anxiety, and headaches. Well, as I think about this, I have had a number of patients, I would say over the past three, four years, coming in and complaining of tinnitus. These are not people in their 60s. These are people in their late 40s. Which, which is a little bit odd for me when I think about it. And of course, how many people come to us with issues of insomnia or anxiety? I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Right? But it seems that, well, gosh, if you are sleeping with a Wi-Fi router in your room, it might be worth the experiment of turning that thing off. Absolutely. And like all things environmental medicine, Easy question to ask, you know, during an intake. I mean, do any of these symptoms improve when you go somewhere else, when you're sleeping at a family, you know, or in a hotel or anywhere else? You know, if you're on a trip, do you feel better? Now, there could be a lot of things dovetailing in there. It could be they're not stressed out because they're on vacation or they're not being exposed to radon or mold in their house. I mean, who knows? But again, you can start to try to tease apart these variables as best you can and see if there's a pattern. Easiest thing to do. Yeah, turn off your Wi-Fi router at night. See if you sleep better over the next week. You know, you're not using it while you, I haven't met anybody who's learned how to text while they're sleeping. So you don't need it on anyway. You can shut the thing off and just give it a try. <laughs> I don't know, man. There, there might be an email that comes in overnight that you want to make sure you look at upon awakening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just silly. I mean, you know, our, our reliance on technology is, uh, is something else. <laughs> well, it, I think it's a fabulous tool. Obviously, we're talking here on a podcast. We wouldn't have this conversation without the technology. And at the same time, I mean, there is the topic of our discussion today, which is electromagnetic radiation and its possible health effects. I'm also just looking at 
the social changes that go with, oh my God, I have to be instantly connected and responding to somebody, you know, the instant that they connect with me. Um, I'm looking at just the level of anxiety that that comes along with that someone's kind of looking at me all the time in some way, whether it's on my Facebook or my Instagram or my, you know, whatever, right? This, this whole social media world, especially for us introverts, means you can't really get away from stuff and be quiet. It makes it much more difficult. So I, I think there's a whole lot of sort of psycho-emotional stuff that goes along with it. And, and it, it can make it a little bit more difficult to tease out what's happening on a very physical level and, and what's just happening in our psycho-emotive realm. Absolutely. I mean, all those come part and parcel. I didn't really write much about that and, and other people certainly have contributed more in that um, in that sphere. But yeah, I mean, even just think of children growing up and, and how their brains are becoming wired differently now. I mean, we try to limit screen time for our for our little one, but you know, it's just even nice to say she can go on FaceTime and talk with her grandparents who are, you know, several states away. You know, it's again the technology. We can take it both ways. I mean, it has its pros and it has its cons. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back to these meters that you were talking about and how we can use them to just get a sense of what's happening in our own environment. Is this something that you've detailed in your book, or can you give us a? Just a quick run through on how we can use these devices to get a better sense of are there hotspots in my house and what can I do about those? I was quite honored to have a very seasoned electromagnetic mitigating specialist write the afterword to the book. And, you know, having done this for two decades, he well, did two things. He specifically recommended types of uh, or, or the actual brands of meters that he feels are a good combination of um, efficacy in terms of the tech, but also just cost for the average consumer. And and uh, and then gave specific instructions about how to walk around your house, how to record measurements and what that can mean. And, and from there really means two things. I mean, for some things are obvious, you know, for, I'll give you an example. The alarm clock that's that may be beside your bed on a bedside stand Yes, you can get a meter to measure how far out the magnetic field from that alarm clock goes. But a real common sense approach would be, and I've measured a lot of alarm clocks with the meters that I've bought for the research for my book, but if you can just stick your arm out and touch the alarm clock, my guess is it's probably too close and you'll be able to measure the field coming off of that. And so you need to push it quite a bit of ways. Even like a lamp, a a lamp that's by a reading chair. If that lamp was within a few feet of your head, probably a bit too close. You can get really heady about this. You can buy the meters, you can do the measurements, and it's not a bad idea to do. You can loan them out to your patients and they can measure in their houses. But then just having the sense of, are things too close to me? Can I reach out and touch them? They're probably a bit too close to you to begin with. Oh boy, that makes me wonder how we live modern life. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. Any any other thoughts about this before we uh, wind it down for the day? No, I like I like I said. I mean, circling back, I think uh, 
to me, one of my main messages to this community is to really encourage Chinese medicine practitioners to look at environmental medicine as, as, a, as a discipline. I mean, I had the fortune where I went to school in Portland to be around a lot of naturopaths. I mean, half of my professors were naturopathic physicians. And so they impressed that onto me at, at an, you know, early in my career. And I've since, between functional medicine and environmental medicine, incorporated a lot of that into my practice. And so I would say, you know, this is a whole new aspect. There's a whole new world out there and just at least familiarize yourself with it. I mean, I wrote this book to be kind of a one-stop shop for both a cancer patient and a medical practitioner to get the basics about this specific subtopic. If you want to dive in deeper in biometers, I think that's great, but you don't necessarily have to, but awareness is the key, at least to start having the conversation. So, and if someone wants to continue the conversation with me personally, they're welcome to do so. I mean, they can reach me through my, my website. I'll make sure that all of that is on the show notes page along with your book, and uh, we can also put some links to the meters and those things up there. You know, I mean, it seems to me, and this is one of the things I love about Chinese medicine, in some ways it's the original environmental medicine. You know, it has really, from its get-go, looked at the environmental aspects of human life and, and human well-being, and we're living in a, in a time and an age where the environment has changed. And conveniently, there are tools out there that can help us to better understand it. Um, but I think it dovetails really nicely with the medicine that we practice. So thank you so much for your uh, contribution with us. Oh, thank you, Mr. Max. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.